Thanks. Good afternoon. Um, before we get started, let me get uh, done with some administrative items uh, quickly. Governor Whitman took the train down as the planes were canceled, so we literally have to have her out of here right after 3 o'clock so that she can get the train back to New Jersey. Um, two quick thoughts, though. As, as with all other smart power uh, sessions that we've had here, they're on the record, entirely on the record. If you'll hold your questions till the end, we'll try to encourage a vigorous question and answer session. Um, and also, to the extent if you have your cell phones with you, this would be a great time to turn them off right now. And I'd appreciate it if you do that. Back in 2006, CSIS launched the Bipartisan Commission on Smart Power. And the idea was to develop a vision that would guide America's global engagement and extend beyond military and economic uh, might. Over the course of the past year, we've hosted a diverse group of speakers, and a lot of you have attended many of those sessions to suggest ways that the U.S. might better engage in the international community and equally on a wide array of issues. So today's topic, we'll talk about foreign policy, foreign assistance, energy security, and environmental security and sustainability, which is a topic uh, near and dear to my heart in the Energy and National Security Program. Uh, as governor of New Jersey in the 1990s, our speaker today, Christine Todd Whitman, she earned bipartisan praise for her work preserving the beaches and promoting expansion of green acreage in the state of New Jersey. She pursued what has been referred to as a common sense approach that considered economic as well as environmental objectives in the state. And she carried that through right into her trip to Washington. Prior to her election as governor, she served as president of the New Jersey Board of Public Utilities. More recently, and this is how you probably know her best, from 2001 to 2003, she served as EPA Administrator in President Bush's first term. Governor Whitman currently serves as President of the Whitman Strategy Group, which is a consulting firm specializing in energy and environment, and she's co-founder and co-chair of the Republican Leadership Council. In her spare time, <laughs> Governor Whitman serves as the steering committee for the Cancer Institute of New Jersey, the Board of Directors for the Council on Foreign Relations, as a board member for the New America Foundation, and as co-chair of CASE, which is the Clean and Safe Energy Initiative, uh, with Dr. Uh, Patrick Moore. Dr. Whitman, or Governor Whitman, it's, it's a pleasure to welcome you to CSIS, and we look forward to your remarks. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, and it's my pleasure to be here, and all the intrepid folks that have made it through, at least down here it's a little warmer. I've, up home, they were, the, the planes were canceled, the trains were running, albeit late, but it was getting to the trains that proved to be the real, the real challenge this morning. But hopefully, this is all part of climate change, I tell people. When we have these strange weather events at odd times, we have to understand that it's all part of the same thing. But it was interesting when I was asked to, to come to speak today, and after reading the report, I was thinking back on my time, uh, particularly at EPA, and there was an incident that happened right at the beginning, almost, almost to the seven years ago today to the day when I was in Trieste for my first G8 environmental ministers meeting. And it was taking place just a couple of weeks after President Bush had taken the oath of office for his first term. It was that period of time that's the honeymoon period where you're supposed to think that uh, you give the leader of the free world some benefit of the doubt and the people who are with him. And the meeting was productive, but there was one incident during it that stuck with me and that was brought to mind as I thought about this whole topic area. And it occurred right at the 
beginning, it was the second day, that we were, the meetings, as I say, were, were going well. And it was late afternoon, and I was taking a break between meetings, stretching my legs, walking across the town square of Trieste with the rather large contingent of security that the Italian government had insisted that I have with me. And as we walked across, I saw my Canadian counterpart coming toward me, David Anderson. And I noticed right away that there was nobody with him. So I met David and I said, I thought maybe he'd done what I used to do as governor, which was escape your security. And uh, used to, state police weren't happy with me, but you know, it keeps your sanity. I thought maybe he'd done that. So I said to him, I said, David, where's your security? And he just looked at me and he smiled and he said, I don't need anybody. Nobody hates Canada. <laughs> and that kind of drew me up uh, short because I have to say, I'm afraid here in the United States, so we can't quite say the same thing. That uh, as the world's only superpower, you know, it's not surprising that much of the world is a little bit nervous about what it is we do and, and how we do it. And they have a charry eye toward us, and it's nothing new. It is something that has been there for a long period of time. But still, that really caught my attention. I mean, some of you may remember the book, The Ugly American, that was written really 50 years ago this year. It caused quite a stir. It portrayed a pretty unflattering portrait of Americans overseas. And then when it became a movie, it caused even more of a stir. And unfortunately, 50 years later, it still resonates. And it's still in print, and it's only a mouse click away on Amazon.com, so people can still get it. And I know, you know, I've found in my own travels around the world that people still like Americans and our ideals. They, uh, our conduct as a nation is not always appreciated and not always supported as we look at, at our friends and, and relations, as it were. And that is something that doesn't show any signs, frankly, of changing very soon. And it is a trend about which we should be very concerned. The United States uh, faces a problem today that is not unique. It's not unique to this country. It's not unique in its time and place. It's, the annals of history are filled with the stories of great nations who had a disproportionate amount of political, military, and economic sway, who were looked on by others with a little bit of jealousy, with, a, with an undercurrent of uh, dislike, as it were, because they were kind of living in their shadow. And that was a concern. It's interesting, a member of the British royal family just sort of brought that to the fore again just last week. Before he embarked to come over here, to promote British industry, Prince Andrew was uh, giving a, uh, a press brief, and he said, if you're looking at the challenges that the United States is facing today, we've been through all of them here in Great Britain. Uh, we've won some, we've lost some, we've drawn some. The fact of the matter is there's quite a lot of experience over here that is valid and should be listened to. What the prince didn't say, and uh, I think has to be recognized, and I observe only reluctantly, is that Britain paid an enormous price for uh, some of these lessons that it learned. And in many instances, it learned them too late. And that's something that we want to avoid if we possibly can. Fortunately, CSIS is 
and others are and not only analyzing the challenges that our international reputation poses for our security in the broadest sense, but they're also providing a valuable roadmap as to how we might avoid some of the most serious consequences for our power and our influence. There are, by the way, some chairs throughout here, not just in the back. Your bipartisan commission's uh, Smart Powers report does a very important service, I believe. It identifies the imperative that is essential for every aspect of our power, from the military to the cultural, in a very smart and strategic manner that gives us a way to look at how we can promote peace and security and economic growth around the world for everyone, because that is clearly in our best interest. It's not just what happens here, it's what happens in the rest of the world that matters to us here. Nowhere is the need for that smart exercise of power, American power, more needed today than in the area of environmental and energy policy. I believe that this is at the forefront of where we need to focus our attention. One need only look at the environmental concerns that are being that are spread around the world that to know that every nation is facing these challenges that then unfortunately too few of them are taking the kinds of steps that can actually mitigate them the specter of global climate change is hanging over everyone it's at the forefront of most people's thoughts in the united states as one of the world's most with the wealthiest, most technologically advanced, uh, most innovative nation, we have an obligation to lead. And the world is looking to us to lead in this area. That's what they expect of us. We cannot, however, ask others to do what we're not willing to do ourselves. And that's the biggest stumbling block to our ability to be able to lead the way we should in this important area. Clearly, one of the areas where we are not asking of ourselves what we should be asking is in the seeking of real and measurable and meaningful reductions in greenhouse gases. We're not there and we're not doing. The federal government is lagging badly behind states and localities in this area, and that is no way to show leadership, provide leadership to the world. The states are way ahead in putting on caps on carbon, calling for caps on carbon, and benchmarking of greenhouse gas emissions. Washington's failure to lead in this area has led to this growing patchwork quilt of regulations around this country at the state and local level. And they're good as far as they go, but they aren't sufficient. And we need to understand that it's only when we take action as a nation that we are really setting an example the kind of example that others can follow. The great news is that I believe that's likely to change, no matter who is elected president, which party controls the Congress. I think we are going to see a change in this, and we are going to have a cap on carbon. So I'm optimistic that we are going to see the kinds of leadership initiatives that we'd like to have in order to really be out front in this issue. A hard cap on carbon emissions needs to be put in place in the United States. However, we can't expect the sort of progress that we need in greenhouse gas emissions if we do it only ourselves. 
We need to involve the developing world. They have to be part of this. China and India are among the world's largest producers of greenhouse gas emissions, and their impact is growing on a daily basis as they continue to spur their economies. And that's going to continue over the coming years unless something dramatic changes. It is unrealistic, however, for us, I believe, to expect them to accept a hard cap on carbon on an actual basis or on any of the greenhouse ga gases as their economies continue to expand. They're just not going to go there. They're concerned with cause about the impact that would have on their ability to grow both in the short and the long term. We used, we've got to remember that a lot of what they're using, a lot of the approaches they're using and the things they're doing are the very things that we did back before we had an environmental movement in the 70s and we hurt our, our environment in the process. Those nations don't yet have the framework that we've developed over the last 40 years, either in regulation in a regulatory body or in the laws themselves. They're just not there yet. But that doesn't mean I don't believe that they would object to putting in a different format and they approve it in a different way that focuses on greenhouse gas intensity, which allows them to grow but not produce greenhouse gases at the same rate as they would otherwise. We in the developed world need to look at a hard cap on carbon. But for the developing world, we should be able to set up a framework that talks about intensity for them and make that kind of a difference. If we show leadership in this country on this issue, both by what we advocate and by what we do, I believe that we can achieve an agreement. And we can achieve the kind of agreement that really truly will make a difference. Indeed, I think promoting greenhouse gas intensity reductions through greater anti-pollution technology and technology transfer, which is something that we have within our power to do, is a very smart way to use our power. China, for example, is, they are building one coal-fired power plant a week to keep up with their rapidly expanding economy. It's, coal is cheap, it's easily available, and that's where they're going. And anyone who has taken even one breath of Chinese air, whether it's in Shanghai or in San Francisco, knows that while they may be employing some very good modern technology, they're not doing enough. In fact, uh, there was a study done by the Scripps last summer that reported to up to three-quarters of the particulate matter that we were seeing in California came from Southeast Asia. And particulate matter, the PM 2.5, is what is the most problematic for human health. It's the easiest ingested into our lungs, and it stays there. This is a global problem. I mean, Mother Nature has never recognized geopolitical boundaries. They don't exist for Mother Nature, and that's why it is a challenge for all of us. United States leadership in improving performance of energy production around the world would be a very smart use of our power. And it could stretch everywhere from the smallest huts in Africa to some of the most rapidly developing parts, industrializing parts of the developed world. And it may surprise you to know, because I know the statistic always stops me short, that some 3 billion people around the globe 
are subject to bad air quality from indoor air, from what they are using, the biomass that they are using. They're using biomass for fuel. And that contributes to the death of as many as 1.6 million people every year from breathing the air inside their homes. In fact, every 20 seconds, someone dies from indoor air, poor indoor air quality. That's an enormous challenge. Providing cleaner, safer, more efficient alternatives in this area doesn't have to be terribly expensive. You can come up with cooking stoves that cost as little as $5 for some countries. But then again, if you live in a country where the GDP is only in the low hundreds of dollars, $5 may be beyond the capacity of many people to share and to use. And that's why uh, back in 2002, during a trip to Johannesburg for the World Summit on Sustainable Development, I was able to announce on the part of the United States a clean energy initiative, the Partnership in Clean, clean Indoor Air, which was aimed at improving the environmental performance of energy use in the developing world. Over the course of the first five years of the project, the United States government has provided some $7 million to this initiative. Uh, the Partnership for Clean Indoor Air, which has worked very hard in turn to leverage that with some private donations, and actually they're about to, to spin it out from the Environmental Protection Agency and try to expand the, the support of it. But we need to do so much more. And it seems to me that a, a minor increased investment in this one would be a very smart way to use the United States' power, a very positive way and a smart way at a small cost that could have enormous impact. And we have it within our capacity to do that. Leaping from the technologically simplest, which would be the, the stoves, to some of the more, most technologically complex, I so also happen to believe that investing in nuclear power is an effective way to impact positively what's happening to the quality, air quality in our world. Nuclear is the only base power that does not produce any greenhouse gases or other regulated air emissions while it's producing power. As you know, it is clean, it's reliable, it's affordable once, it, once it's up and running. Yet nuclear power actually worldwide is one of the least used resources, even less than renewables on a worldwide basis. According to the Department of Energy, by the year 2030, worldwide energy demands will have nearly doubled over the 2004 levels. That's going to put an enormous strain on our ability to provide the kind of power we need. But nuclear power is expected to grow by less than 40% in the course of that. The reason nuclear power has failed to really catch on is well known, I think, to all of us. Uh, Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, the difficult issue here in this country of what we do with the waste, with nuclear waste, the concern about radiation. But I have to say, and I have been active on this issue recently, and so I've spent a little more time with it than I've had before, that I think the answers are really, when you know the facts, it's, it's a lot less problematic than it, people would have you believe. Nuclear plants are, don't produce greenhouse gases, as I mentioned before. They, they are clean, they are effective. And you'd have to live 
if you live next to a nuclear plant over the course of a year, you get the same amount of radiation as you get from watching television. So the issue about radiation is not as big as it was. On the nuclear waste side of it, in this country, if you took all of the spent nuclear rods that are currently stored on site on the 103 sites we have around the country, they would fill one football field to the height of the goalposts. It's not as big an issue, but it's still an issue, and it must be solved. But there are answers out there, and one of those big answers is in recycling. Japan and France are actively using a technology that reduces the amount of fissionable material in spent nuclear rods by 90%. Right now there's about 96, actually it's better than that, because right now there's about 96% fissionable material left in those rods, they can get it down to 2 to 3%. That's an area where we should be focusing, and it's a technology we should be supporting. With that huge expected increase in electricity and energy demand, the use of American power, I believe, to encourage more nuclear power being used around the world would be a good and positive thing. We use nuclear power as 20% of our energy today, so we can't encourage others to do it if we don't look to shore it up in this country, if we don't show that we've made a commitment to this as well. We can't ask them to accept a risk that we're not willing to take, if we consider it's a risk. And before setting the example, we have to do more also in promoting the technology transfer that would allow the developing countries to leapfrog over the kind of mistakes that we made while we were growing our economies back in the industrial age. The Bush administration did announce a project back in February of 2006, the Global Nuclear Energy Project, which was a part, which is a partnership that's designed to help developing countries in acquiring the reactors and the fuels they need to generate power without having the necessity of putting them in a position of having to enrich uranium. And that, of course, is something that is of great concern to people who are worried about the proliferation of nuclear weapons. Now, GNEP, as any new pro program, has hit its bumps. It's had its issues. But I think we can all agree that the goal is an appropriate goal, that that's something we should try to make work, that that's, that's the important thing. The stated emissions like the, clean, the, the Partnership for Clean Indoor Air and the Global Nuclear energy partnership, I believe, reflect smart power at its, at its very best. They put the United States in a favorable light, in a light that is easily overshadowed, however, by some of the other things we do. And um, that's the reality of the world in which we live, and, and we have to understand that. I believe, however, that this administration has set up an appropriate framework to move us beyond the kinds of uh, concerns that we've seen in the past and that's in with the Millennium Challenge Corporation. As someone who was on the board of the MCC, I believe strongly in that approach to the way we use our power, our influence, and our money. I believe it is making a very great difference. And again, it is something as a new program that's been getting some unfavorable press because it hasn't started quite as fast as people expected or wanted. But and I understand that frustration. The only thing I, I have to say is we ought to remember the quote that is often attributed to Aristotle, saying to give money away is an easy matter, and it's in any one person's power. But to decide to whom to give it, 
how large and when and for what purpose is not in one person's power and is often very difficult to do. And that's true. It's easy to give it away. And of course, compounding the challenge that the MCC faces is the mindset here in Washington that money that's been appropriated and not spent in a budget year is money not needed. And that's an enormous challenge to, to try to get over. But I think it's one worth fighting because it is the wrong mindset to have when you're dealing with long-term problems. There are not short-term solutions. I was pleased that the budget that the President submitted just recently increased the funding for MCC for next fiscal year to 2.225 billion. That's an increase of 680 million over the previous years, and I know that that money is already committed to programs to compact countries, and so it is something that we need to support. In the introduction to the uh, report that I that I read from the co-chairs on the Smart Power Commission, they quote Machiavelli's line that said, "It's it's better to be feared than loved," and then they go on to say that in this day and age, perhaps it's better to be both. Uh, there's something to be said about being feared and being loved. There's absolutely nothing good to be said about being hated. I don't think we are hated universally, but we certainly are by some. And we're not loved by everybody. And we're not even liked by everybody. So we have our challenges in front of us. But I think we have the framework and we have the ability to overcome those challenges. It will take time. It's going to take a lot of effort. And it is something that we need organizations like this to take up as a challenge in order to ensure that the thinking of those who are going to come up with the policy that represents the government's position have the right ideas and are looking at the right goals and the targets. That would really be smart power at work. And I certainly hope that you will continue on this effort. Thank you again very, very much for inviting me here today. And now I guess we'll ask questions. And Thank you, Governor Whitman. I, I referred to you as doctor earlier. I said it's a little-known fact here that we actually confer, confer degrees to those that stay after 4 o'clock, so maybe the next trip down. <laughs> Going to miss that one. Exactly, at least today. Um, we have a couple simple rules here when we address questions. The first is that you identify yourself uh, when you ask the question and your affiliation, which would be really helpful. Second is if you could pose your question in the form of a question. I know a lot of people have comments and at least have the courtesy to raise inflection at the end of the sentence. That would be useful as well. <laughs> so let me start. We'll start with Sam and then kind of work our way back. I'm Dr. Sam Hancock of Green Motion. Uh, thank you for being here today and braving the elements. And uh, what do you think are some of the alternative uh, energies? Uh, nuclear, of course, is controversial. And what are some of the alternative uh, energies, renewables and otherwise, that you think could uh, be used and, and promoted around the globe? Geothermal, I think, holds a great deal of promise. Obviously, hydrogen is something where there's been a lot of money and attention put into it. I don't see hydrogen as a viable mobile source of power, but it's there already uh, for, a, for a stable source of power. And I think that's something that can and, and should be promoted. Wind and solar are great and they're important. The problem we have in this country and in other countries is, first of all, they're intermittent. They, they're not base power. They're peak shaving. And we haven't come up with the high-intensity battery yet that would allow us to store it so that they could become part of the 
of the base power structure. And of course, when you do that anyway, the cadmium that you're going to be using, you have to figure out how you're going to deal with that at the end of the day. You have a host of other issues. But also, they tend to be in places that aren't right next to population sources. And you can see it particularly in this country. They have a huge um, geographic footprint. They require, there are, takes a lot of windmills to make power of, of any kind of quantity, a kilowatt of power. And so uh, there are problems with that and with the transmission getting there. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't continue to try to improve on that. Coal will always be part of our power, our base power. It will be in this country because it's better than 50% of our power. It's certainly going to be, we see, as I say, China's doing one coal-fired power plant a week because it's affordable and, and cheap. Uh, we're going to have gas and oil, but what are the really best ways of using that? Uh, we see this huge fluctuation in gas prices, and that's been of enormous concern to people, is that are we using it the best way, and can't we reduce our dependence on that? There are also ways that I haven't even thought of, that nobody's thought of. Uh, we actually, my company is working with a city in South Korea, Nusangdo, which is actually, it's going to be the size of Boston when it's built, and it's going to be a lead ND city, the whole thing. Um, the office, the apartment buildings will be basically, the office buildings will be lead gold or silver, silver or gold, and then they have one uh, platinum lead. I tried to get them because I think those of us who are of a certain age remember that the Korean War, one of the big challenges was the Incheon Landing because of the tides. They have the, some of the highest tides in the world there. And I thought, okay, tidal, why can't we use tidal for our energy? It didn't work. Couldn't find, the, the problem was that, that when you take that water, you have to funnel it in order to get the power and that changes the ecosystem surrounding and there were a host of problems and it wasn't feasible. But there are other ones that, that we haven't even begun to think of that are gonna come forward and, and that's exciting to look at. We should be promoting all of them where I worry is, in this country, is the government tends to get behind one source. They shouldn't do that. If we're going to have money for research and development for renewables, it should be for renewables, the whole portfolio of renewables, not something like corn-based ethanol. Thank you. Doesn't work. <laughs> you get points for that one. <laughs> Thank you very much. Raghubir Goel, I'm with India Globe in Asia today. Good to see you, Goel. I had two quick questions, or one and two. One. You said that uh, many countries do not like America today. And uh, we had Karen Hughes who tried her best from the State Department. Um, I understand that uh, more those countries hate U.S., that U.S. is giving them money, or friends of the United States are the one who hates them more. And second, what do you think about the civil nuclear agreement between U.S. and India, which still is pending in the... Uh, what they call bureaucracy in Indian parliament or the, some of the leftists? Or do you believe, uh, if you have studied that uh, because of too many conditions or restrictions, or why is still not going through which uh, President Bush had done his best to uh, bring India clean energy? Well, I can't speak to why India isn't moving forward with it faster, but it is something that we should be promoting. I believe it's, it's the right approach to try to encourage green energy around the world. Again, we need to be doing and putting emphasis on it here in this country so that we can, can show by lead by example and also be able to provide absolute ex examples. So that that's, a, that's one of those things that's gotten caught up in, in the local politics. And also, the, there's always this attitude when you're taking money from somebody that that means you're dependent and it comes with strings and you resent the strings, that's natural. And 
that's why I like the MCC approach because it allows the countries to come first to say this is what we want to do and they have to meet certain criteria in order to be eligible for those <laughs> funds and it requires the involvement of civil society. It allows it to be a much more comprehensive process and one that is really based on what the countries need rather than what we think the countries need. And I, th there are a couple of mis I mean, you know, who am I to talk about? We've made mistakes in foreign policy. I mean, everybody makes mistakes and nobody's perfect, but I think we ought to be very careful about the, under, the way we've approached the personalizing our international relations. We tend to focus on the individual leaders of a country and start to make the relationships be about them and with them. It's particularly true, for instance, Musharraf and Pakistan. That means that when anything goes wrong with them, there goes our relationship. And it also hurts sometimes them and their countries and undermines their effectiveness and it doesn't, I don't believe, necessarily accrue to our best interest. We need to enter into a much more partnership role. And we, it's perfectly legitimate, I believe, to have standards for the money we're going to give, to have requirements on that money. And that's why the MCC approach that allows the country to say, yes, I do want it, and I'm willing to participate, and this is what I'm going to do, makes a lot of sense to me as a new paradigm, really. Ray Dubois, CSIS. Uh, Governor, if gasoline or the reduction of gasoline consumption, which has clear foreign policy, national security policy, economic domestic policy benefits, what would be your recommendation to the next president with respect to a policy, whether it's investing in advanced technologies, hydrogen, fuel cells, uh, hybrids, or, or tax credits, tax incentives, what would be your recommendations to the next president with respect to achieving some kind of a program of reduced gasoline consumption? Well, I certainly think raising the CAFE standards is something that we have got to continue to push. Uh, we need to keep doing that. I'd say happily a tax on gas, but it's not going to happen. Um, I tried that in New Jersey in order to raise money to help preserve open space, and I couldn't even get the legislature to begin to think about it. There is no appetite, I don't believe, on Capitol Hill for a tax. So it would be more incentives. And it should be, if you're going to have incentives, again, they've got to be, excuse the pun, clean incentives. You can't say that we will give people a tax break on buying a hybrid car, but only from a manufacturer that hasn't sold more than 300,000 hybrid cars. I mean, that makes no sense at all. It's clearly, I know it makes sense, it's protecting Detroit. But Detroit still isn't there yet, and the only way Detroit's going to get there is if the competition is real and not uh, buffered by the federal government in this way. So if we're going to do it, we should open it up. It's the same way if you look at, at biofuels. Corn-based ethanol, to my mind, makes no sense. I mean, it doesn't burn effectively. You can't, you have to mix it at the pump because it, it adheres to water or water adheres to it, and you can't transport it through the pipes. It has a ripple effect, as we're already seeing on the rest of the economy, because, you know, those of us who grow up on farms know that we're using the corn for something, and it wasn't for gas. And when it gets used for gas, it's not going to the, uh, those other places. And yet we've had a tariff on Brazilian uh, sugar corn, uh, sugar cane-based ethanol, which is actually much more efficient. There's switchblade. There are a whole host of things. And by getting behind just one source of power, I think we've made a mistake. We have narrowed the inventive genius, frankly, of the American people and the business community who can come up with a whole lot of different things if we open and make the incentives more broad-based. So I would think the next president, A, needs to take it up as a serious issue, 
talk about raising the CAFE standards, not reducing them, and one candidate who is no longer uh, in contention said that in Detroit, that he was going to roll back the CAFE standards. We can't afford that kind of talk. And then look at the kinds of incentives we could put in place that would encourage the behavior that would reduce our dependence on that. Yes. I don't see, I mean, the hydrogen car may be the, the car of the future, but the infrastructure is so far, it's going to be 25 years. I mean, DOE is already behind on their project, and uh, the challenges are enormous. I've seen the cars. We have them. The cars are there, but um, you can only fuel them up here in the district. You've got two places, I guess, in the district, and you can't fuel it up. You have to let the little man do it because you might blow yourself up, and that would really do some damage to the enthusiasm for this form of, of energy. But uh, eventually it will be there. But I, you know, I drive a hybrid and I love it. There are people who want a fully electric car and, and that's great too, depending on how you produce the electricity for that. It's just like hydrogen. You've got to produce the hydrogen for something and it takes some energy. I think you could do that with nuclear pretty well. If I might just follow up on that. The infrastructure, which is the conversation we had earlier. A lot of the, the renewables, a lot of the new energy forms require infrastructure that doesn't exist yet. The IEA projection was $22 billion over the next 25 years. So we have to be smart in our choices, keep your eye kind of on the end game. But I think we're looking at, at a period of, of kind of near-term solutions, mid-term solutions, mm -hmm. long-term solutions. And we're going to leave some investments stranded along the way because we're going to make some mistakes. But to figure out where you're going. Yeah, I think the hybrid is just kind of a, is one of those. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's the interim. It's a bridge. Uh, mm -hmm. Joe, go ahead. Uh, my name is Joe Dukert. I'm an independent energy analyst, but also a senior associate here at CSIS. Uh, Governor, uh, while you were EPA administrator, you were ex officio, a member of the North American uh, Commission for Environmental Cooperation. Uh, and during the first year of the Bush administration, uh, something called the North American Energy Working Group was established. There was never any cooperation between, and, and I'm not blaming you, uh, there was never any cooperation between NAWIG and CEC, and so far as I know, there still isn't. You mentioned David Anderson. At the time, David Anderson was head of uh, 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 Environment Canada. I think Ralph Goodale was, was uh, I'm sorry, he was, he, one, one was in charge of environment, one was in charge of energy, and they didn't cooperate at all. Do you have any advice for the new administration, Republican or Democrat, on stopping the stovepiping within governments and within North America in those, uh, in those efforts between energy officials and environmental officials? Well, I think the first thing that would make an enormous change is to make EPA a department and give it cabinet status. Because while that didn't affect any of my relationships with my contemporaries or my other... Hmm? Yeah, Spence was the, the, the cabinet secretary there. It didn't affect our relationship and our ability to talk and to plan together. You get down a little bit in bureaucracies and, boy, it make a difference. You're only an agency, and everybody has their turf wars. And Spence and I, we get together. I said, hey, you take this. I thought, fine by me. I could care less as long as we're getting the job done and it makes sense where it's gone. And, and the two of us would sit and we would come up with those things, and you'd start to try to put them in motion, and you'd be amazed at what happened. You'd get further down the line. 
So one of the first things I really do believe is, to, is a clean bill, just make it the way it is, a department, so that there's none of this second-class status when you get into the bureaucracy. But it's just a psychological thing that shouldn't mean a whole lot. It wouldn't really change anything in the way it, it operated, but just in the, in the relationship. And then there needs to be a strong signal from the president that we've got to work on these things. Um, you know, it's whether it is putting someone from the the White House staff in charge. I mean, you've got CEQ, which is supposed to coordinate all the environmental policies between all the agencies. But again, all the departments, once again, EPA gets sort of the short end of that because we're only an agency. Uh, CEQ maybe needs to be reinvigorated in the sense that the president needs to say, I want to see coordination here. I want to see cooperation. I want to see less government bureaucracy. I want to see a smarter use of what we have available already. Um, EPA steps on everybody's turf. I mean, EPA is involved, whether it's Defense Department or Department of Energy or Commerce. Uh, EPA gets in there some way or somehow, and nobody likes to see us coming because it uh, meant they were going to have to spend money because we were going to tell them they were doing something wrong or they would have to change behavior, and that's the problem with a regulatory agency. But it takes leadership from the top to say, I'm sorry, this is important, and we need to move forward on these things. And you're going to be there. Now, the president always had us at the table. We were, you know, I was treated like a cabinet member. It was when you got down to the working groups that it made, where things really start to happen in government at the working group level, that our opinions and our proposals and our suggestions were not given, treated in quite the same way that uh, our counterparts from the departments were treated, even though it was an issue that we, we knew the best. Tom Hicks, uh, U.S. Green Building Council. I've got a question about China. You mentioned uh, China. They've got, and you mentioned technology transfer uh, opportunities and maybe some ideas for some carbon uh, intensity uh, goals. But given here in the states, we have 18,000 folks uh, at EPA serving the 400 million people uh, here, and they've got 1.2 billion, 1.5 billion. And they've got less than a thousand people. How? What? What sorts of things can the world community do? to help China not repeat some of the mistakes that you referred to in your discussion? Um, well, as you've seen in the last few five-year plans that they've had, uh, the Chinese have made environment a major part. Now, of course, the fact that the, the Premier will stand up and say, we've missed our target, tells you they weren't this serious about it, because when they get serious about something, they can make it happen. Now, there's not a whole lot of question. If they want to get something done, it gets done. So I don't believe we've actually had that kind of commitment. But they do care about what the rest of the world thinks of them. And they do care if there's pressure put on them from the other countries saying, look, you've got to clean this up. Plus, they're seeing it themselves. They have an enormous challenge this summer with the Olympic Games. I mean, it, face is very important in the culture. And if they are going to be seen, you've already got all the equestrian events are going to take place in Hong Kong because they can't, the air just can't get clean enough for the horses. I don't know how you run a marathon in or around Beijing right now. I mean, I don't know why you'd even try it. So they're going to close down manufacturing. They're going to ban cars. Um, they're going to take some pretty extraordinary steps they're talking about to try to clean up the air for the games. And that will just be a finite period of time. Multinational companies now are starting to raise their hand and say, hey, we don't like this. It is a hardship post for the State Department because of air quality, as is Delhi. Uh, both hardship posts. 
If we were to enter in with them and say, we will help you, we're not going to try to hold you to the same standards that we as a developed nation should be held to. But we're going to try to work with you to ensure that you continue this kind of your economic growth. But don't make these same mistakes. It'll be better for you. They have an enormous problem with uh, both air and water, actually. It's not just uh, air. But the health issues with their population, now it's so big that maybe they don't notice it quite as much. But those families do. Those villages do. They care. And they are, as you know now, moving the industrial base away. Everybody was moving to the, to the shoreline, I mean, along the coast, because that's where all the major cities were developing. Now they're moving them out the country, which is just moving the pollution further out into the country. But you have had some 1,800 demonstrations in the last year in China. Uh, we don't always hear about them. But the people in those villages and towns on a variety of things, not the least of which was the gorgeous, Three Gorges Dam, um, a, that was a protest on, from environmental perspective. So we need to, to look for where we can work in a cooperative way with them rather than say, look for the punitive. You know, We're not going to let you into this organization or that organization. We're not going to give you aid here or there if you don't do something, but rather say, here are ways that we can work together to help you clean up your environment. Because they're starting to see the, the impact domestically from what's going on, and they're starting to feel the pressure from some of the international community, from the, the private sector as well as the public sector internationally. Thank you. Uh, Bob Copayton, formerly of the Department of Energy, among others. Um, you did talk about countries around the world that don't like us. I, I think of Hugo Chavez of Venezuela as a case in point. Uh, and we depend uh, fairly significantly, it seems, on imports of Venezuelan oil. Uh, he's, I think, an effective master of what I would call petropolitics, uh, using Citco oil to you know, subsidize uh, imports and, and give it to poor people here. What do you think we can do, if anything, to make Mr. Chavez uh, dislike us less? Well, I don't know that we can make him dislike us less. It's played pretty well for him. Um, I'm not sure that, that that's his best interest, but I will tell you that one of the things, I don't know, it's maybe too late now, but one of the things, you've you got to talk to people. Even if they don't like you, you've got to talk to them. If you don't talk to them, you really have no ability to affect a change. If you're not in some kind of dialogue, it doesn't mean you stroke somebody like the Hugo Chavez, and I'm not sure he ever would have uh, embraced us anyway, but we might have been able to reduce some of the collegiate uh, support he's been able to garner over time. Now, the other side of that is we've got to try to figure out ways to reduce our dependence on that kind of foreign oil. It's, we're never going to be energy free. When I hear the, the candidates say energy free society, I think that is such a sound bite for a campaign and so far from policy potential that it just makes me laugh because, as you well know, energy is really pretty fungible and it's going all around the world in different places. And we're always going to have to, we're always going to be importing some, but we can reduce our dependence. So the kinds of and when he gets out of bed on the wrong side one morning and decides he's going to turn off the tap, as he's done from time to time, that isn't going to send us into a tailspin. We need to have a, a be better and more stable and more self-sustaining. We're never going to be completely independent, but we can be more self-sustaining. Yeah. 
Hi, Leara Falk, BNA's Daily Environment Report. Um, going back to the question of China, what is the is the concept of having a cap, of trying to enforce a cap at all realistic there, of trying to get an international cap when they're building a coal plant a week when punitive responses have not been effective? Well, that's why I don't think we can expect them to engage in the same kind of uh, regulatory framework that we have. I think we ought to have a cap on carbon. I think they, what we ought to do is work with China and India and the other developing nations to work out intensity caps on carbon which will allow them to grow, intensity reduction, so that they're growing their economy, and yes, there'd be more carbon. And the environmentalists hate it because it would mean there are more greenhouse gases going in to the atmosphere. But that's going to be a fact of life. And if we can reduce the amount of greenhouse gases going in, we're making some progress. It's not going to be perfect, but you, I don't believe you will ever get China, India, or any of the, the developing, the fast developing nations to agree right now to a hard cap on carbon. It's just not in their interests. And many of them feel that, and that's why they were not parties to Kyoto, they really felt it was a developed nation subterfuge to stop their economic development. What made it so interesting is we weren't signing it because we thought it was the Europeans trying to control our economic growth. So it's uh, the two extremes looking at the same, coming up with the same kind of uh, reason for not being party to it, although I think Kyoto has, has its problems, so I was never... I never had a problem with the president's position on that or the country's position on that. But having said that, I don't think we can expect the same kind of regulatory regime in the developing nations. I suspect what we will see more of is regional compacts. You see regional compacts today. We even have it now with, with states that have entered into compacts with some of the provinces in Canada on reduction. You'll start to get trading. The European Union has a cap-and-trade program now. They're entering into a compact. It'll be more regional that will eventually They'll eventually have to come together because you're going to have to have some continuity in, in how you price carbon, what you do with your uh, offsets, the standards. It'll have to be standardized, but I think it'll come at it this way. I don't think we'll see, and I don't know, I mean, they're negotiating the next phase of Kyoto now, uh, but I don't see this country ever signing a Kyoto, and I would doubt that you would have the developing countries uh, accept a hard cap in the near future. Uh, Tamiya Master of Tokyo Electric Power Company in Japan. Uh, first, uh, I appreciate the governor's support to tra technology transfer to developed countries and uh, nuclear power development in the world. And in Japan, uh, the government and uh, companies uh, have a strong interest in APP and uh, GNEP program. And we worry about the policy change uh, in the future. So how do you think the next president think, how the, uh, does the next president think about the, these programs, APP and the GNEP? Well, it's going to be hard to know on those, on specific programs, how the next administration is going to treat them, depending on who it is. I mean, sometimes you get administrations that just will throw out everything, no matter whether it's good or bad, just because the old administration did it. Um, hopefully, Whoever wins this one is going to be a little bit more sophisticated than that and look through them. And I think these are good programs that are going to be worthy of, of support. What I will say is, as I indicated in my remarks, is I don't really think it matters who is elected president as far as the United States moving into a carbon-constrained economy. Of the three major candidates, I mean, okay, 
I don't know where Mike Huckabee is on this. I haven't read his latest statements, but I don't think he's going to get the Republican nomination. I sort of will ignore that. But of the other three whom I would consider the, the likely of the likely nominees, they have all said that global climate change is a major issue. They've all talked to the need to move to some kind of a cap on carbon. As we know, John McCain's had a bipartisan bill in for some time with a cap and trade program. Um, they've all spoken to this issue. So you will see, they will be looking for programs like this that will help improve the worldwide footprint on greenhouse gases. Now, whether they keep the exact same programs or they just change the name or they decide the heck with it. If it was a good program, I'll admit it's a good program. We'll go forward with it. I mean, not everything about this administration is bad. They've got some very good things that they've done. Uh, and those should be recognized and we should build on them. So uh, one way or another, you're going to see much more activity in this whole area, I believe, in the next few years. My name is Martin Apple. I'm the president of the Council of Scientific Society Presidents. It's a group of a million and a half scientists in 150 research fields. The IPCC report is an intergovernmental panel, but underneath it is the science that took 25 years and 2,500 scientists to generate. And that conclusion is that we are in a world crisis that we have never been in before, and to a degree that we have never been in it before. And all of the measures that you're proposing, even the ones that are leading candidates are trying to propose to get us to an improvement are really beginning to fall short of what the world may need. And so I think we should begin to think in terms of really bigger projects, really major changes. If we can use um, the major source of the sun to be able to make wind energy, to make solar energy, and capture the differences when we don't have it, when they're not shining, when the wind's not blowing through fuel cells or whatever, we can begin to create systems that will work better. We lose more than a half of our energy in this country by transmission lines and other things. So because we have decided they have to be centralized and send their power lines hundreds of miles. So if we really rethink the system, we can, in, the, in a period of one generation or less, make enough of a solution to make a huge difference. But if we do it piecemeal, and if we try to raise the cafe standards or whatever, we're not solving the problem, at least in my judgment. I don't disagree with you that those are not the, the full solution. Obviously, we have to be much bolder and much broader in our thinking. But we've got to get the people there to the point where they'll accept that kind of thinking. Because even with a president who might embrace all of this and want to have the big thinking and make it like man on, you know, man on the moon kind of thing, that we're going to go into outer space, that kind of, of focus, you've got to get the Congress there too. And I want to tell you, there are a lot of people in Congress who still don't even believe there's a real problem. And they are reflecting in many instances what their constituents feel. Because the, we're just coming, this country is so, we've lagged so much in this area of climate change as far as educating the public that we're way behind the rest of the world. I mean, Europe is taking the steps that they're taking because they have the political support to do that, because it's going to cost money. And that's the other part of this whole thing that, that I love when we hear these discussions at the, uh, in the debate level. When we talk about we're going to have all this new power and everything, guess what, gang? It's going to cost us more. And nobody wants to talk about that. 
and transmission is going to cost more. I mean, we're going to have to pay more to get the power that we want to continue the quality of life that we enjoy today and that we like to have. So it needs, it, it is going to take someone to, to put it up on a level that says, okay, this is what we've got to start solving today. And I just did a thing this morning actually with Aspen, if I can mention that here. Um, Okay, that'll be deleted, and I, and I'll get points taken off too. I'll never get to that doctorate. Never going to get there. Um, but on a health stewardship program, talking about how we need to change the way we look at healthcare in this country and try to look at uh, prevention and, and healthy lifestyle rather than how do we better treat people who are sick. But one of the things of that is to everything, every decision that's made should be looked at. What is that impact going to be on health? And I can think of no more direct correlation than what we do with the environment and energy and its impact on health. And we're going to, at some point, it's going to take a really big thinking to put those things together and say, this is all part of one discussion that we need to have. And it's worth making the investment in time, money, and energy to solve these problems because they're going to have real consequences. But until we can relate what's happening to the environment to people individually, they don't buy into it. And that's what we... It's an incremental thing that is frustrating, and we're starting behind the curve. So it's really, it is going to take, if we got someone, if there were a president who wanted to put this as their, their big signature issue, they could encompass a lot of things in it. It would be terribly complicated and, and difficult to do, but it's the kind of challenge that we can meet in this country. We have terrific brains and a lot of ingenuity. I'm convinced that we can solve just about any problem if we just get out of the way and let it happen. Let me take this top, the conversation a little bit off topic. Um, earlier we talked about, in addition to being head of the Republican Leadership Council, Governor Whitman authored a book, It's My Party Too, where she talked about uh, crossover, bipartisanship, moderation, get rid of the, bi the partisan bickering to form a better country for the American people and solve some of these issues. Can you talk a little bit about the politics since you're in Washington in primary season, you can't get away that easily. <laughs> It was dangerous when you got on the train, yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. so, Absolutely. I on mean, that. one of the things that encour has encouraged me is that the candidates who are coming to the fore are the candidates who are talking about reaching across party lines and solving problems. And that's where the American people have been from the get-go. That's what I've seen as I've traveled around the country forever. The American people are not at the extremes. They really are in the center. And what they want out of their elected officials are people who will problem-solve that will not see every issue as being a partisan political issue that offers the opportunity for gain in the next election cycle. I mean, you just look at some of the major issues, energy being one of them, where we've had an energy proposal, energy bills in, they don't go anywhere until the gas at the pump goes up, and then all of a sudden we get action and you don't get a comprehensive plan. The reason they didn't get discussed, because each side wanted to hold them for the next election cycle so they could beat up the other side about how they hadn't done anything. Uh, you don't think we couldn't have had some intelligent solution to the immigration issue, which is number one on everybody's list. Well, now the economy is taken over as number one. There was a bill in the House and a bill in the Senate. They passed. They never conferenced them. That's one of the very few times in the history of our Congress where they hadn't even appointed conference committees. They had no discussion. Why? Because they were coming into an election cycle and this was a hot button issue for the base of each party. And what we've got to do is get beyond that. And one of the things that I think makes Barack Obama so appealing to people is because that's his main thing. That's what he's talking about. And whether people know where he stands on the issues or not, at this point, 
all they're saying is we like the message. We like the message that we've got to work together. And the other candidates are starting to figure this out. And John McCain has always been someone who has reached across the aisle and has not been afraid to do that. And that's why he's being excoriated by the far right of our party. And some of the things they say about him are really pretty awful. I thought they said bad things about me, but he's really getting it now. Um, he's really taking it. So it's, it's good to see that happening. I hope that the interest that, you know, this is the first time since 1952 that we haven't had an incumbent running. So it's hardly surprising that this election season is so different than any that we've experienced in our lifetimes. And I just hope we can sustain this interest that what we see in the primaries, the, the voter turnout will continue in the general elections because up until this year, the average voter turnout in primaries in this country was 10%. Um, the average voter turnout in congressional elections when they were the top of the ticket was 35% and we really thought we'd done a terrific job in presidential when we got to 51%. And that is just inexcusable, frankly. Um, and I'm hoping that what's happening now, if people are beginning to see that yes, in fact, the only people that can affect and change the system are the people. You know, it's the voting box. That's what democracy is all about. And hopefully people are going to continue the kind of enthusiasm that they have today and that belief that they can make change through till November and then continue it after that and start to be really involved. Governor Whitman, it's been a pleasure. Thank I, you. I'm glad you came down here. And uh, I very much appreciate it. Join me in thanking the governor.